Heavenly Father, thank you that as your people now, we have the privilege of hearing you speak to us through your word. Lord, please, uh, would you graciously uh, give me wisdom as I seek to teach your word, and would you uh, be at work preparing all of our hearts to receive your words for us, that we would be responding in faith and obedience that you would be particularly challenging each and every one of us in the ways in which we need to individually respond to what you have to say to us tonight. For your glory. Amen. Wow! They're really bad! I've never seen anyone do that before! There's no way God would ever ever save them they wouldn't they wouldn't repent they wouldn't accept Jesus anyway I'm not going to bother sharing the gospel with them they wouldn't repent in a million years what's the point I'm not going to share the gospel with them I wonder if those thoughts have ever run through your mind when you have the opportunity to witness for Christ with someone maybe you've just met or you've known them for a while I know those thoughts have ran through my mind many times. So often, we as Christians stop ourselves from sharing the good news about Jesus because we've already made up in our own minds how the people that we are talking to are going to respond to the gospel. We've already made up our minds that they're just going to say, no, they're too bad, they're too wicked, they're too far gone. There's no way they're going to accept Christ. Well, Paul, in our verses this evening, is going to give us the antidote to that way of thinking. And it flows out of what he's already told us in verse 11 that we saw last week. Look, read it with me. Verse 11. In accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul is now going to speak to us about that gospel, which is the antidote to this belief that someone is simply too far gone, that they possibly couldn't accept God now and accept Christ. It's the gospel which Paul has been entrusted with. It's the gospel by which he has become an apostle, a chief witness, a chief authority to Christ. And as he teaches us tonight from his own experience, He's also going to give us, as Christians, the greatest encouragement as well. That God's grace is so much more powerful than we so often believe. Take a look at me with the words that Paul uses to describe himself in verse 13. Under our first point, we're going to look at Paul's past before he was a Christian. Verse 13. Though formerly... I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent, or in other words, a violent opponent. Some of us might find that quite hard to believe. The Apostle Paul? Blaspheming? Persecuting? Surely not. The Apostle Paul? How could he have done things like that and be the Apostle Paul, the guy who God used to write more than half of our New Testaments? A blasphemer? A persecutor? A violent man? 
But that's what Paul has to say about himself and what he was like. And we know he's not being hard on himself here as well. Uh, We have accounts from other sources that back up these claims. Uh, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts earlier in our New Testament, said the following about Paul, who was known as Saul at the time before his conversion. Let me just set the scene. An evangelist called Stephen has just proclaimed the gospel to the Jewish council in Jerusalem. And we read, it's up on the screen, from Acts chapter 7 going into chapter 8. Let me read. Then they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Sumeria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Before Saul became Paul, he was really bad news. He was the most fierce enemy of the newly founded Christian church. Those who belonged to what was known in Paul's time as the way. Paul believed with absolute conviction that Christians were heretics who denied the truth of Judaism and sought to stir up dissension wherever they go. Preaching that the law of Moses was not able to save sinners and that this man called Jesus, this supposed Messiah, was actually the son of God. He was actually on the same level as God himself. Paul accused Christians of blasphemy and in zealous fury sought to wipe all of them out. In Acts 22 verse 4, Paul says of himself on the screen again, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. I know Paul isn't overstating his case here, friends. He was truly a blasphemer. He denied the lordship of Jesus and actively sought to eradicate his church. He was a persecutor, a very, very violent man. No one burned with such hatred against Christians quite like Paul in his time, dragging them off to prison, sending them to a certain death. Keeping that in mind, take a look with me at verse 12 now. See what Paul has to say about himself. Verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Hmm? Judged me faithful? Christ Jesus judged Paul faithful? And not only that, he didn't just judge him faithful, he appointed him to his service as an apostle, as one of the chief witnesses to the gospel. That salvation from sin was now possible through faith in Jesus, the man whom Paul had been persecuting, and persecuting his followers too. 
Some people reading this for the first time might think, come on, there's been a bit of a mix-up here, hasn't there? The same Paul who so fiercely persecuted the Church of Christ, who treated with great violence the members of the body of Christ, and not only that, but in that way persecuted Christ Jesus himself as well. How can this work? I mean, surely Paul would have to be the last candidate to be Jesus' chief gospel messenger. How could Paul be so unjust and yet judged as faithful by Jesus? Well, we have the answer in verse 12. In our second heading, Mercy for Paul. Uh, We read, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, in our Bibles, it's been translated the word strength, but actually more literally in the Greek, the word for strength here is actually the word empowered. It's saying a little bit more than Jesus made Paul Paul strong. Jesus completely restored Paul by his gospel, showing him incredible mercy. That was the only way Jesus could possibly judge Paul as faithful and appoint him for his service. And we'll see how that was possible a bit later. It was nothing to do with how righteous Paul was or how dedicated Paul was. It was purely out of Christ's mercy upon Paul that he was able to be judged faithful. So we read on in verses 13 and 14. Halfway through through verse 13. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly. In unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Well, it sort of makes sense. But again, in those verses, Paul says, I receive mercy because I had acted, I had done something. It's normally a big no no for us as Christians, isn't it? We don't say, well, I received mercy from God because I did this, and I did that, and I did, and so on, and so on, and so so forth. As if we actually deserve Christ's mercy. As if we can somehow actually earn Christ's mercy. I've always found that the easiest way to work out if someone has really got to grips with the gospel, if they've really understood it, I just have to ask them one question. And it's this. If you were to uh, pass away tonight, friend, what guarantee would you have that God is going to let you into heaven? Why should God let you into heaven? And if they give an answer along the lines of, well, it's because I've done this, and I've done that, and I help a granny across the road, and all these kinds of things, I know straight away that they haven't understood the gospel. God's mercy doesn't come to us because of what we do or what we've done. It's a gift of grace. Grace. Undeserved, unmerited favour. Made possible only because of what Jesus has done for us. Our assurance of mercy, of salvation, of eternity in heaven as Christians has nothing to do with what we've done. It's all to do with God and what he has done. 
in his mercy for us. So what does Paul mean here? Uh, He can't be saying, I acted ignorantly, in unbelief, uh, therefore I deserve mercy. He can't mean that. Not only would it defeat the entire basis of the gospel, which we've just seen, but also, there's no point in the Bible whatsoever, no place which says that ignorance of sin means you can be excused from the penalty for it. It's not an excuse. We can't say, I didn't realise it was sin, therefore I'm not culpable for it. We're told the very opposite. It's still sin. And it still deserves God's judgement. Whether we know we're doing it or not. What I believe Paul is saying here is this. He was able to receive mercy because he sinned in ignorance. He was able to receive it. Not he deserved it because he he sinned in ignorance, but the fact that he sinned in ignorance meant he was still able to receive it. You see, friends, there is a sin we're told about in the Bible that can eventually cut off someone from God's mercy. Now, one of the places we're told about that sin is in Mark's Gospel. I'm just going to put a passage up on the screen. It's from Mark chapter 3. A group of Pharisees have accused Jesus of being in league with Satan. He's been exercising demons from the people, and the Pharisees have come along and said, it is by Satan that you are driving out these demons. And Jesus responds to them like this. It's up on the screen. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Friends, there is a sin that can eventually cut a person off from God's mercy. And that is to maliciously reject the work of the Spirit, both in speech, in what we say, and in action, in what we do. Just as the Pharisees were doing here. Because it's only by the work of the Spirit that we are actually Christian here tonight. It is only by the work of the Spirit that we are actually able to receive mercy. He is the one through whom God convicts us of our sin. The fact that we have rebelled against God. That we are facing God's judgment for rebelling against him as the Lord of our lives because he created us and he sustained us and we've said, I'm going to go my own way. The Spirit is the one who reveals to us the true identity of Christ. He shows us the forgiveness and the justification and the reconciliation that is available in Jesus. And he enables us, though we are dead in sin, to accept Jesus and be made alive in him. Now, friends, I do not want to alarm you here this evening. This is a very, very extreme case that we are dealing here. And it does not happen very often. Please know that if you have accepted Jesus... Either here, either tonight or in the past. If you've accepted him as your saviour and your Lord, you have not and you will not commit this sin. It is only those who knowingly and maliciously and fervently oppose the work of the Spirit 
in their own life and in the lives of others that are in that could be in this situation. And had Paul been a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man as he said he was back in verse 12 and had he done all those things and not been ignorant had he persecuted Christ and his church in full knowledge of who Christ was and in full knowledge of what he was actually doing then he may well have fallen into this minute category of people whose hearts were so hardened that God was not willing to show them mercy anymore, like those Pharisees back in Mark chapter 3. But Paul wasn't in that position. He was ignorant in his sin against Christ. And so he was still able to receive mercy. doesn't mean he deserved it. It means he was able to receive it. Now I think Paul puts this strange explanation of the nature of his sin here for actually a really good reason. He doesn't want us, he doesn't want the church in Ephesus, he doesn't want Timothy, and he doesn't want us tonight to think for one second that sin is not serious. He doesn't want us to take up the attitude, sin all you like, it's covered by Christ. If we start to think in those terms, we have misunderstood the gospel. And though we may view Jesus as the king of the world, we are not treating him as our king, the ruler of our lives. If we really have received God's mercy, then his spirit is at work in us and we will be making a conscious effort to turn away from our sin and to seek to live with Jesus as our rightful king. And the great news is that as we do that, we will be shown mercy. As Paul tells us from his own experience in verse 14, the reason for why he was now a repentant and forgiven sinner, the reason for why he could now be secure in his salvation, an apostle of Christ. Because verse 14, read with me, The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The grace that Jesus showed Paul was more than enough, more than enough to cover all of his sin, past, present and future. He says the grace of Jesus, his Lord, overflowed for him. And in the Greek that word is literally Super abounded. It's super abounded. Now, as most of you know, I'm a big fan of movies. And one of my favourite movie series are the original Superman films. Uh, I, I, I know on the screen, we'll, if we get the picture up, yeah, I know that's the new Superman up there. Uh, I prefer Christopher Reeves myself, but don't worry about that. Let me tell you about a scene from Superman 3. A huge nuclear power station is on the verge of blowing up. It's on fire. It's uh, it's in a place called Kansas. uh, And it's just going absolutely haywire. The reactors are coming really close uh, to melting down. Get the next photo up. Uh, The reactors are going critical. If it melts down, then hundreds of nearby towns are going to be destroyed. People are running around, they're screaming for their lives, they think, all hope is lost, we're going to die. 
Superman's just cruising by, looking very cool like he does through the clouds, like that. And immediately, as soon as he sees this nuclear reactor on fire, he flies at tremendous speed to the other side of the country and further to one of the great lakes in Canada. And using the power of his own breath, he turns the whole lake into one massive block of ice. You've got a picture of a big lake coming up on the screen. Picture of a big lake. Uh, next one. Okay, one of the, a big lake. Now this thing uh, was big. This block of ice that Superman made out of this lake. It was it was big. It was like KL size city city size big. And he picks up this block of ice with his bare hands. And bombs it all the way back to Kansas. Bear with me, the point's coming. The people on the ground think it's a solar eclipse, okay? Because when this huge block of ice comes across, the, the sun gets blocked out. They're like, oh no, what's going on? It's the end of the world. And then Superman just positions himself and let's go. And this massive block of ice falls down. And before it's even hit the ground, it's turned I- I- into water. The fire is absolutely drenched. Superman has created the largest rain cloud in the history of the planet. And as hard as the the fire tries to burn, as hard as it tries to devour everything in its path, it can't do it. There's just too much water absolutely everywhere. You think Sunway Lagoon's bad? This was worse. Too much water absolutely everywhere. The waters quite simply superabounded over the fire until there was nothing left but a little cinder. The reactors cool down, the surrounding towns and all the people are saved. Superman has saved the day again. It's an out-of-this-world story, but it helps us to sort of grasp that word superabound. For Paul, it was the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that superabounded in him. No matter how wicked he was, no matter what he had done, the fact that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, that was nothing compared to the power of the grace that Christ showed him. It was like dropping that gigantic block of ice onto that fire. The fire didn't stand a chance. But that grace that Jesus showed Paul, that covered his sin, that that was able to say, you are a just man in my sight. Well, Paul wants to make it really clear to us that his experience of God's mercy is not unique. It's not just limited to him. It's available for all. Our third heading, mercy for all. Come, to me, come with me to chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, or in other words, of whom I am the worst. This is the heart of Paul's apostolic gospel message. The message that Jesus himself had commissioned Paul to take out. That Jesus came for bad people. God's only son, the Christ. The king promised down the ages who would deal with our greatest problem. Sin. 
our willful rejection of God as our God and our decision to go our own way, to be the boss of our own lives. Well, Jesus was going to deal with that issue. The punishment coming upon us because we've rebelled against God. He was the one who would save us from God's just punishment for resisting his rule. He would allow us to receive the blessing of God's mercy and God's rule over us again, bringing us his inheritance of eternal life that we're told about in verse 16. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That we might share in that through depending on him. Jesus did not come for good people, friends. He didn't come for those who thought they were okay. Who believed that by religious devotions, or by petty works, or by observance of meaningless rituals, they could somehow cover over their sin. They could somehow make up for it. Christ came into our world to save sinners, of whom Paul was the foremost. Paul was the worst. How do you save us? Well, by living that perfect life that we wouldn't and we couldn't because of our sin. And then experiencing the full punishment of death and hell that he didn't deserve. On the cross, he took your sin and he took my sin and he dealt with it finally and completely. He faced the full punishment for our sin. So that when we depend on Jesus, on his sacrifice on the cross in our place, when we believe he took it for us and so accept him as our saviour and as our king, depending entirely on him, we are forgiven. We are cleansed of our sin. We are reconciled to God. We are saved. And that we even includes Paul, the blasphemer, the persecutor, the insolent, violent man. Jesus saved Paul. Friends, do you find that encouraging? Jesus saved Paul. I really hope you do, because that's one of the key reasons why Jesus picked Paul of all people to be an apostle for him. Come with me to verse 16. Paul says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, as the worst, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul was a living, breathing monument to Christ's incredible patience with men and women like us. That same patience has been shown to us as well as Christians. Paul's wicked past, his conversion on the Damascus road, and his uh, conversion into the apostle he became by God's grace, has been recorded for us to guard us against the idea that people can just simply be too bad for God. That sometimes we just push it too far. 
And there's no hope for us now. See, it's to guard us from that idea that God can't possibly love them anymore. They're just too evil, they're too bad, they're too wicked. Or, well, God just can't possibly forgive me for that sin. It's too nasty. It's, it's just terrible. There's no way he'll take me back. Friends, salvation never depended on our own goodness, on our idea of morality. If it did, Paul would be lost. And so would all of us. If Paul who persecuted the church of Christ, who claimed to be the worst sinner in human history, if he could be saved by God's grace, then so can others and so can you. The only ones without hope are those who know the truth about Jesus and the rescue that is available in him, but maliciously reject him for whatever reasons, oppose him and persecute his people. And I will say again, they are an extreme minority. Well, Paul can't help it. He breaks out into a wonderful doxology in verse 17, praising God for his unchanging character. He says, To the king of ages, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. God is unchanging. He is trustworthy. He is true. And he has granted us salvation in Christ. A salvation from sin that allows us to receive grace and mercy superabounding. A salvation that leads to eternal life. He will not go back on his promise. If you depend on Christ, you will be forgiven. No matter what you've done. That is grace superabounding. And it is all for God's glory. Our final heading in verses 18 to 20. uh, Mercy and church discipline. Read with me from verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. We know from uh, last week, uh, last week's sermon that all was not well in the church of Ephesus that Timothy was pastoring over. Extreme measures had to be taken to deal with the serious issues that were going on in this church. Uh, Paul starts by taking us back to the charge we saw last week in verse 3. Timothy was to stop anyone who was teaching a doctrine other than the one he was teaching as an apostle of Christ. And Timothy was to stop them in their tracks. Any doctrine that went against the glorious gospel, Paul has just explained. Timothy was to stand firm. He was to hold the faith, remaining dependent on Jesus and trusting in the power of the true apostolic gospel to save and equip 
and allow Christians to endure. He was to defend the unique claim of Christ Jesus as Lord and Saviour of mankind against those who would defame him. And Paul tells us of two individuals uh, who were not doing what Paul had told Timothy to do. Hymenaeus and Alexander. Sadly, they had been taken in by some false doctrine, uh, taken into the point where they not only believed it, but they were advocating it in the church. They were trying to convince others that this was true, that the gospel that Paul was sharing was not what was central, or it was not what was right. And by doing so, they made a shipwreck of their faith, Paul says. And the penalty for this was really serious. Paul had subjected these two to the most serious form of church discipline. We're not told explicitly how Alexander and Hymenaeus had actually blasphemed the faith, but it would have involved rejecting the apostolic gospel and peddling something else in its place. So Paul tells us he had them handed over to Satan. Sounds awful, doesn't it? being handed over to Satan. How do you get handed over to Satan? It doesn't mean that Paul had them killed. He, he sent them on a one-way road to hell. No, I don't think that's right. What I think Paul means here, when he says, I handed them over to Satan, is I've thrown them out of the church. I've kicked them out. You see, Paul uses very similar language in his first letter to the Corinthians, where he's telling the Corinthian church to discipline leaders who are blatantly sexually immoral and aren't showing any sign of repentance, any sign of being sorry for it whatsoever. And so he says these things to the church in Corinth. It's up on the screen from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-5 to for those making notes. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and is it present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Alexander and Hymenaeus had been kicked out of the church, and that is a very very serious punishment indeed. But it was necessary. Because the damage they could have, been, could have done by being allowed to remain in that church, peddling that false doctrine, well, would have been incalculable. Leaving so many brothers and sisters away from the true gospel on which they were to base their salvation. So shipwrecking their faith too. But it wasn't just out of necessity that Paul kicks them out. I actually think it was an act of mercy for them as well. Because Paul's hope is that during their exile, during their time outside of the church, they would recognise the seriousness of their actions. 
They would learn not to blaspheme the faith, to stop teaching why, uh, what is not in accordance with the glorious gospel, and in godly sorrow, repent and be restored. Paul would have no doubt remembered his own experience of God's mercy shown to him, even though he was the worst of sinners. And so he hoped that God would show them that same mercy. And this is the attitude we're to have in matters of church discipline here at SMAC. One of genuine love and care for the guilty. Not, I'm pushing you out because I don't like you. Not, I'm pushing you out because you're strange. We only remove people from this congregation when it is really serious and we only do it with the attitude of love for their sakes and we constantly pray that they will be restored and soon. Well, let me reaffirm a couple of points as we finish. First of all, do not think that they are too bad for God. Do not think that they are too bad for God. And when I say they here, I mean those in the outside world who are not Christians, who are continually rebelling against Christ as their king. There's a group of pastors in Texas who make a point of visiting prisoners on death row. Now, these guys aren't the spiritual advisors who come to see a man five minutes before he's being executed to share a few words or to hear anything he might have to say, like a last statement. These pastors visit these inmates awaiting to be executed week in and week out. And unlike the spiritual advisors who stay on the safe side of the bars, protected, these pastors go into the cells unprotected. Now, we've got to understand the situation for these prisoners. They are already facing the greatest penalty under human law. They are waiting to be executed. If they were to hurt those pastors, physically, mentally, it really wouldn't matter to them. It really wouldn't affect their circumstances. So why do the pastors do it? Why do they risk so much? And why do they think for a second that these guys, these hardened criminals who have committed the worst crimes in our societies, would possibly repent? Why would they possibly accept Jesus? You want to know why I think they risk their lives week in and week out to witness the gospel to these men? Because they understand the power of God's grace. They have seen the great encouragement of Christ's mercy in the conversion of Paul. The worst of sinners bar none. And so they know that God in his mercy could also grant repentance to these men too. There is still hope for these inmates that they are visiting now, I doubt that any of us here at SMAC will be put into that kind of situation. But I imagine we will have many opportunities in the coming weeks and months and years to witness, to share the good news about Jesus with those who we would term undesirable characters. So what will we do? Will we write them off? Will we say, no, they're too bad? There's no way they'd accept Christ. Will we, in a sense, make up, our, uh, make up their minds for them? 
Or will we remember Paul? If he could be saved, why can't they? Let's be making the most of every opportunity with anyone we meet, no matter what their background, no matter what they think, no matter what they do, let's be making the most of every opportunity to be sharing the good news of Christ with them. Now I do, I realise that tonight we've seen a group of people in the sermon who are said to be excluded from God's mercy, who committed that, uh, the unforgivable sin. We must remember that they are an extreme minority who will go out of their way to fight against the work of the Spirit at all costs, in their lives and in the lives of others, by speech and action, in full knowledge of who Jesus really is. To the point where their hearts become so hardened that God is not willing to show them mercy anymore. Friends, we must never ever assume that those that we have the opportunity to share the gospel with belong in that category. It is not our job as Christians to judge people. Our task is to be constantly and fervently sharing the gospel and calling people to repent and put their trust in Jesus. Never, ever giving up on them. And the rest, we leave that to God's mercy. Secondly, and finally, do not believe that you are too bad for God. Do not believe that you are too bad for God. When Satan plants that little lie in your head, which I imagine he will, especially once you've just fallen into a sin, maybe one you've committed for the first time, maybe one you've committed for the umpteenth time, when he tells you, look at you, you're not good enough for God. You're rubbish. Just give up. He'll never, ever take you back. Don't listen to him. Don't listen to that lie. Satan has no grounds to accuse you anymore if you are trusting in Christ. Instead, remember Paul. The living, breathing testimony to Christ's endless patience and mercy. It is more than enough to cover your sin. So don't give up. Repent. Ask for the forgiveness that is available in Jesus' name based on the sacrifice that he has done for us on the cross and seek to say no to that sin and live for God again by his strength. God is faithful. God is just. He will forgive you your sin and purify you from all unrighteousness. So persevere. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are such a merciful God. That you saved Paul, uh, the worst of sinners, though he was a blasphemer, a persecutor and a violent man. You saved him by your grace and thank you that through him you demonstrate to us your endless, patient mercy. 
Help us this week to be living with Jesus as our King, to be resisting sin, and when we fail in weakness or ignorance or through our own deliberate fault, remind us of your grace. Help us to depend on Christ and Christ alone and to continue living with him as our King. Help us to be taking this message that can save your gospel to those whom we may not find desirable, but whom you love. To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen.